We're continuing on this morning in our consideration of the Old Testament book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Uh, this morning we're going to think through uh, together chapters 18 and 19. And just as a user's guide, uh, because we've got so much ground to cover, uh, we may not, well actually we won't read uh, every verse uh, that's in this, uh, these two chapters. Uh, so I think it'll help you if you have a Bible open. I'm going to read some big chunks of the text, but there's going to be a few places where I'm just going to kind of point to a place and kind of describe a little bit about what's happening there. And I think it'll help you if you have a Bible open so you can kind of orient yourself. So Genesis chapter 18 to 19. Uh, if you don't have a Bible or didn't bring a Bible, there should be a Bible under the chair in front of you. So, uh, so far in the book of Genesis, uh, Mike and Seth have faithfully walked us through to this point. We've seen the creation of the world. We've seen the descent of mankind into sin and rebellion and judgment. Uh, and recently, we've been considering the life of Abraham. We've seen God make a promise to Abraham that uh, he would have a son named Isaac, and that through that son, God would create a nation, and that through that nation, God would bless all the nations of the world with salvation. So a couple weeks back when we were in Genesis chapter 17, we, we saw in verse 21 that the Lord made this promise. He said, I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So we see in Genesis 17 that this promise that God's made to Abraham now has a timeline attached to it. That this child, who is to be named Isaac, this child of the promise, will arrive within a year. And it's in that context that our passage for this morning opens. So if you look at Genesis chapter 18, let me read for you uh, verses 1 to 15. It says there, Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick. Three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, 
but you did laugh. Okay, so there in verse 1 of chapter 18, the Lord appears to Abraham again. And in verse 2, we're told that Abraham looks up from his tent and he sees what appears to his eyes to be three men. Now, in Genesis chapter 19, which we'll see in a few minutes, Lord willing, we see that at least two of these men are actually described as angels. And it becomes clear that the third man is really an appearance of the Lord himself. Uh, the text there uh, calls him the Lord in the English uh, translation. The, the Hebrew there is Yahweh. This is, this is God himself. This is God Almighty uh, appearing to Abraham in the form of a man. And so even though Abraham is something of a minor king himself, we see him acting with all sorts of deference here. In verse 2, he runs which is not something that a dignified older man would do in that society. He bows down and calls this man Lord in verse 3, using a Hebrew word that indicates that, that he understands that this person is divine. He prepares a feast for them. And there in verse 8, he, he stands by as they eat. That's a, a typical posture in that world, in that culture, for someone offering hospitality to an honored guest. There in verse 10, we see the Lord repeat his promise to Abraham that he would have a son in about a year. And it seems that the point of repeating this promise was so that Sarah would hear it. We see there in verse 10 that she's listening in on the conversation from her tent. Now, presumably, Abraham had already told her what the Lord had said, that she would be having a child. But, but here she's hearing it directly from him. There in verse 12, she laughs to herself at the idea, much like Abraham did back in chapter 17. It was simply impossible that a woman her age could have a baby. Right? She was no more likely than Abraham to get pregnant at this point. And so she simply doesn't believe the Lord's promise. Now, a few things for us to notice here. From the, the Lord's question there in verse 14, right, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Right, implied answer, no. To, to Sarah's bizarre decision to try to, to lie to God about whether or not she had laughed there in verse 15. Right, there's a lot of things for us to notice here, but what I want to do is actually put a pin in these ideas, and Lord willing, we'll come back to them next week. Uh, when we consider chapter 21 and 22 next week, Lord willing, uh, we'll have an opportunity, I'm sorry, chapter 20 and 21 next week. We'll have an opportunity to see the birth of Isaac and we'll have a chance to think through uh, the fulfillment of these promises that, that God is making here. Verse 16, as we kind of continue on in our passage, introduces us to the events that will follow. It says there in verse 16, then the men, that is these two other men, set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Now, if this were a dramatic reading, if this were an audiobook, as soon as the, the word Sodom is spoken, there would be sort of ominous music in the background. Right? If you remember, Moses, our author, has already tipped us off as far as what we should expect. Back in chapter 13, Moses told us, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And from our vantage point as modern readers of, of the text, we know from passages like Ezekiel 16 and Jude 6 and 7 that, that Sodom, this city, was known for its sin. 
Uh, Those passages list out sins like excess of food, pride, prosperous ease, neglect of the poor, and sexual immorality. And so when Sodom appears now in our narrative in chapter 18, in verse 16, we are expecting the worst. And we read beginning there in verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring Abraham, bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they've done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So you see here in these verses, the Lord is musing, presumably for our sake, so that we might know his thoughts. The wickedness of Sodom and the city of Gomorrah there mentioned in verse 20, it's, it's so great that it cries out to the Lord. As we'll see in a little bit, uh, there is one righteous man, a man named Lot, living in that city. And the, the book of Second Peter tells us that Lot was, was distressed and outraged by the sin in that city. And so maybe when the Lord talks about the outcry coming up, he could be just sort of personifying the evil of the city, crying out against it, sort of a, a self-testimony, a self-condemning testimony. Or he could be referring to Lot himself, who is crying out to the Lord in the midst of all this evil. But here the question is whether he's going to let Abraham in on what he's about to do. The very fact that the Lord is raising the question at all indicates that he's planning on doing just that. Uh, According to verses 18 and 19, Abraham is the one chosen by God to bring blessing and righteousness to the nations. And so God is going to treat Abraham like a friend here. He's going to let him in on his plans, on what he's going to do. And it's in the light of that that the rest of our passage for this morning unfolds. And so what I'd like to do with our our time this morning is just simply consider three events that we see take place in the rest of chapter 18 and in chapter 19. First, let's see Abraham intercede. Second, we'll see Sodom burn. And then finally, we will see Lot linger. So Abraham intercedes, Sodom burns, and Lot lingers. So first, let's look at Abraham interceding. There in verse 22, uh, the two men, again, we're going to find out soon that they're really angels. They turn to go down to the city of Sodom, and, and we'll meet them again in the next chapter. But that leaves Abraham alone with the Lord. Now, I wonder what you would do in this situation if you were Abraham. If the Lord disclosed to you that he was about to pour out his judgment on the wickedness of your neighbors, what feelings might you feel? What actions might you undertake? We see what Abraham does there, starting in verse 23. It says, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? 
Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, this is extraordinary. Abraham negotiates here with the Almighty. And the Lord agrees not to destroy the city if 50 righteous people can be located within its walls. Right, that's amazing enough. But what's even more amazing is that Abraham keeps going. And we see sort of unfolding over the course of this chapter. He says, well, what about 45? I mean, if you're not going to destroy it for 50, what's five people? Right, you're not going to destroy it just because it's missing five there in verse 28. When the Lord agrees there in verse 29, Abraham says, well, what about 40? Verse 30, what about 30? Verse 41, what about 20? And ultimately, he gets the Lord to agree to spare the city for the sake of just 10 righteous people, if they can be found. Okay, so what's going on here? Why is God allowing Abraham to persuade him like this? Right? Is God changing his mind? Because the Bible is pretty clear that God never changes his mind. Right? It's one of the perks of being perfectly wise and having all knowledge. Right? You never get it wrong, and so you never have to go back and adjust your plans. Well, note a few things that are happening here that might help us to understand what's going on. First, notice that, that Abraham is, is speaking with all humility. Right? He is not challenging God. He's not setting himself up as an authority that God has to reckon with. He's not demanding anything, but with fear and trembling, he comes before the Lord with his request. There in verse 27, we read, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. In verse 30, he says, Oh, let the Lord not be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. Again, in verse 31 and verse 32, he prefaces his comments with a, a similar expression of humility. And so make no mistake, Abraham does not see himself as correcting the Lord or telling him what he ought to do. He's pleading with the Lord as a supplicant. With that said, notice also the basis on which Abraham pleads. There in verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You see, Abraham is pleading with the Lord based on God's revelation of his own character. Because Abraham knows that the Lord is good in all that he does, he can't imagine that the Lord would be willing to sweep away good people in judgment even as he judges the wicked, right? He knows that the Lord is judge of all the earth. He knows that the Lord alone is the one who knows what is right and good. And so, of course, there's no way he would ever do anything that's not right. And friends, that's our great comfort as well. When we don't understand the reason for something, when we don't understand our suffering, when we don't know what will happen next, we can always have the same confidence that Abraham had, that the judge of all the world will always do what is right. 
And so Abraham here isn't trying to correct the Lord or convince him of something that he's reluctant to do. He's simply coming before the Lord on the basis of God's own revealed character. Third thing to notice, and this is important, is that this seems to be exactly what God wants Abraham to do. Remember that God is the one who initiated this conversation. God began this interaction with Abraham by telling him in advance what he was about to do. If God didn't want to have this conversation, he could have just gone and and struck down Sodom and it would have been over. But he told Abraham specifically so that they could have this conversation. There in verse 18, God gives as his rationale for looping Abraham in on his plans the fact that it's through Abraham that all nations will be blessed. It seems that God wants Abraham to respond to the idea that the nations are falling under the judgment of God with this exact response. He wants Abraham to plead for people who are about to perish under the judgment of God. He wants Abraham to express a merciful heart. He wants Abraham to long for their deliverance and salvation because it's gonna be through Abraham, through his family, through the nation that comes from Isaac, through the redeemer who comes from Israel. It's gonna be through Abraham that God does bring mercy to the nations. Notice also that Abraham seems to come before the Lord here with what we might call covenant boldness. He's humble, but also confident that God has chosen him to be his friend that God has called him to this role and to this relationship. And so, God, so Abraham goes before the Lord with his requests. And so we need to understand Abraham's intercession on behalf of the people of Sodom as exactly the thing that God wanted him to do, as the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. And then finally, the last thing to notice is that there are not, in the end, actually 10 righteous people in Sodom. What we're going to see is that Abraham's nephew, Lot, is really the only righteous person in the city. And based on his behavior in chapter 19, I think even he would be the worst person I've ever met by a country mile. For right now, it seems to emphasize the rightness of what God is doing. It's it's like a way that he's just demonstrating to Abraham that he's not being unreasonable here. But there, in fact, aren't even 10 righteous people in the whole city. The judgment that's about to fall on Sodom is is the people there getting what they deserve. There aren't even 10 righteous people so that the city should be spared. Now, before we move on to chapter 19, I think this interaction between Abraham and the Lord, this interaction highlights a tension that is only gonna get more intense as the the story of the Bible continues to unfold. And that is the tension between God's righteousness and his mercy. Abraham asks here, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Well, yes, of course he should. And so what does justice mean? Well, particularly in this context, it means giving people what they deserve and not giving people what they don't deserve. So Abraham is pointing out that, that uh, pouring out judgment, destroying righteous people would be unjust. The wicked get judgment, the righteous ought to be spared. 
That's justice. That's what Abraham is pleading for. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, punish the wicked, but spare the righteous. What does that mean for us? If God is the judge of all the earth, and if he will do what is just, and if just, if, if justice means punishing the wicked and sparing the righteous, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for Abraham, a former idol worshiper, a man who impregnated his servant instead of trusting the Lord's promise, a man who is a liar, as we'll see again in chapter 20 next week? What does justice mean for Lot, who, as we will see, is a man who offers his daughters to a crowd and then gets drunk and impregnates them? What does justice mean for people like you and me, people who have gossiped, lied, envied, stolen, lusted, cursed, slandered, people who have worshipped the creation rather than our creator, people who have failed to love God and failed to love our neighbors? What does justice mean for Abraham, for Lot, for the people of Sodom, for you and me? I think the inescapable conclusion is that if the judge of all the earth is to do what is just, we will suffer the same fate that we're going to see befall the city of Sodom. We will be destroyed in body and soul under God's perfect justice. But God isn't only just. He's also merciful. If justice is giving people what they deserve, then mercy is sparing them what they deserve, giving to them even what they haven't earned. And so Abraham wants God to spare Sodom in his justice. But what he needs and what Lot needs and what you and I need is mercy. But how can God do what is right? How can the judge of all the earth do what is just and still be merciful to sinners? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, that's the one great question that arises out of the Old Testament. This is the tension that seems simply beyond reconciliation, God's justice and his mercy. If he's not just, he's not God. If he's not merciful, he's not God. And it's not possible to see how he's both of those things at the same time. They're incompatible. They can't be reconciled, or so it would seem. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Listen. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, Paul's saying we've all sinned and fallen short. We are all on the Sodom end of God's justice. But Paul says that those of us who have faith in Christ are also justified, declared righteous by God's grace as a gift. Right? Do you see the tension? How can it be? 
How can God be just as Abraham knows that he is, but also be the God who justifies, declares righteous, sinful people? Doesn't it have to be one or the other? Well, Paul says that God has solved this unsolvable problem by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is to say, Jesus came and died on the cross, making atonement for our sins, offering himself up as a sacrifice for us. Jesus was judged in our place. Jesus took on himself the punishment and the justice that our sins deserve. Jesus completely satisfied the demands of justice on our behalf so that we can experience the grace and mercy of God. Jesus took what we deserve so that we can have what he deserves. Frank, can you see how amazing this is? It was impossible, but God did it. Nothing is too difficult for him. Remember, that's, that's what he asks Sarah there in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, yes, God, surely you can't be a God of justice and mercy. That's too much. Paul reminds us in chapter 3, oh no, it's impossible, but God did it. In Christ, he's made a way for him to be perfectly just, but also the merciful justifier of anyone, any sinner, no matter how wicked, who puts their trust in Christ. Friends, what great news for us. How marvelous is God's wisdom shown in Christ. And Christian, this helps us to trust him doesn't it? There are times in our lives when we cannot imagine what God is doing. We, we, can't, we can't fathom a way he can keep his promises to us or how he can be good given our circumstances. But just remember the, the lesson that we see here, the tension in Genesis 18 that doesn't get resolved until a cross some thousand plus years later. Just because we can't imagine the solution doesn't mean that God doesn't have one. The cross proves to us that God can do anything and that the judge of all the earth will always do what is right. So that's the first thing for us to see, Abraham intercedes. The second thing for us to see this morning is that Sodom burns. And there we turn to Genesis chapter 19. In verses 1 to 3, the two angels arrive in Sodom. Lot convinces them to spend the night in his home. It seems that we're, we're meant to read Lot a bit like Abraham in chapter 18. He's, he's a good guy. He's offering hospitality. He's offering food to strangers. Now, if you remember back earlier in Genesis, Lot wound up in Sodom because he thought it was the really like great place to be. Uh, he thought he was taking the nice part and leaving Abraham with the the, the less desirable land. So it does seem to be significant that, that Abraham has this big feast in chapter 18 with curds and a fattened calf and all sorts of good things to eat. And, and all Lot prepares for his people here is some unleavened bread, right? Basically throws him a bag of chips, right? It doesn't seem like Lot is really thriving all that well. But there in verse four, things get dark. We read there. But before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, 
surrounded the house, that is Lot's house, where the two angels are staying. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they've come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both great and small, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Well, now we know why the Lord said that there was an outcry coming out of Sodom against its evil. Right, in case you're inclined to think that this just represents a few bad eggs, verse 4 reminds us that this was all the people to the very last man. In verse 5, they make their intentions clear. The word no is the, the Hebrew uh, expression for sexual intimacy. And so it seems like we have something of a, a recasting here of what we saw in Genesis chapter 6. There you remember in the events that sort of precipitate the flood of judgment, we have what seem in Genesis chapter 6 to be something like angels being attracted to women. And it gives rise to this great wickedness on earth that the Lord destroys in the flood of judgment. Here we seem to have the... The, the same idea, just sort of recapitulated and reversed. We have men lusting after angels. There's no indication that they didn't know that they were just normal men, but, but this is a sign that things really haven't improved on earth all that much. And if you're reading along in Genesis and you're sort of a careful reader, you also begin to expect that judgment is coming. Now, just for the record, this story is often used as a proof text for the fact that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin. And I think it's clear in the Bible that homosexuality is a sin. And it seems like this homosexuality is part of the, the mix of sexual immor immorality that Jude ascribes to the people of Sodom. So much later in the New Testament, when Jude is reflecting back on the sin of Sodom, he, he includes amongst their sins sexual immorality. But I think it doesn't do justice to this text to act like the main problem here is, is homosexuality. Right? That's not the only thing going on in Sodom. Uh, these people, the Bible tells us, were rebellious, proud, violent, neglectful of the poor. So we, we shouldn't be surprised that sexual immorality is part of that mix. But we wouldn't want to act like that's the whole story. Like somehow Genesis chapter 19 is, is what God thinks homosexuals deserve, particularly out of like the mass of sinners in the world. Now, Lot stands up initially uh, in verses 6 to 7. So he stands up to the crowd. He tells them, don't do this wicked thing. There in verse 8, he appears to panic. He offers his two daughters to the crowd in place of his guests. Some have suggested this is only a bluff, that he doesn't intend to go through with it. If it's a bluff, it's a horrifying one. Right? The crowd is enraged by Lot's opposition. They threaten to break down his door to the point the angels have to strike them with blindness in order to protect the house. 
And then we read once he's safely inside, starting there in verse 12. It says, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city, bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So these angelic visitors disclose their plot to Lot. They're going to destroy this place because of the outcry against it, right? Given their behavior, uh, we understand why. And so Lot's instructed to round up his family members so that they could escape. Right? It feels like another parallel to the days of Noah. Right? Lot is, in a sense, poised to be a new Noah, chosen to come out of the surrounding wickedness with his family. But you see there in verse 14, the, the conversation with his extended family doesn't go well. Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. How tragic. These sons-in-laws are given a golden opportunity to escape from the wrath of God. But they don't care. They can't be bothered. It's all a joke to them. And so they never flee from the destruction that's coming. It seems that they love all that Sodom can provide for them. They love the food. They love the riches. They love the immorality. Why would they leave? After all, there's no sign of judgment coming. All they have is the word of their father-in-law, who's frankly kind of new in town. Beginning there in verse 23, we read about the final result. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Then looking down at verse 27, Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked up and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So the Lord follows through with his promise. He rains down fire and sulfur, not just on Sodom, but on Gomorrah, the cities, the inhabitants of the valley, such that the smoke going up was like a furnace. That's a terrifying picture. Every man, woman, and child, the animals, the plant life, everything is destroyed. And friends, here's the thing that each and every one of us needs to come to grips with. And that is that the world we live in is under no less a sentence of condemnation than the city of Sodom was in that day. This world, the world that we live in, the United States, the Commonwealth of Virginia, the the town of Sterling Park, this world is headed toward a cataclysmic end no less than theirs was. This is what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 17, where he compares his future return, that day when Jesus will come back to judge the world, he compares it to the destruction of the city of Sodom that we see in Genesis 19. There in Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 28, the Lord Jesus says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. 
so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In 2 Peter, we, we read this same idea in 2 Peter 2, verse 6. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And then Peter goes on to make his point. You see, Peter understands that Sodom and Gomorrah don't exist in a sort of time vacuum, right? They're, not, they're sort of not cordoned in. They're not discrete events. Peter says that they're actually an example of what will happen to the ungodly when the Lord Jesus returns. Friends, this world with all of its violence, all of its sexual immorality, all of its pride, all of its ease, all of its amusements and entertainments, its preoccupations and its so-called wisdom, it will all go on just like normal until Jesus suddenly returns and everything is committed to fire. And so, friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you haven't put your faith in him and been transferred from being an object of his justice to being an object of his mercy, then you find yourself this morning in the very same position that Lot's sons-in-law were in. You've heard. You've been warned. You've been offered an escape route. But the question is whether you'll listen they didn't. It was a joke to them. Lot sounded crazy. Maybe I sound crazy to you this morning. To people in a, in a sensual society, everything that's serious and sober is, is up for ridicule. It's up for a laughing matter. But friend, Genesis 19 teaches us that God keeps his promises. He follows through on his plans. He is the judge of all the earth, and he always does what is right, including punishing evil. So just like Lot pled with his sons-in-law, like Peter pled with the crowd in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2 that we saw last week, so, friend, I plead with you this morning, flee to Jesus before it's too late. Escape the wrath of God by putting your trust in Christ Save yourself from this perishing world. If you have questions about what that means, we'd love to talk more about that. You can talk to me after the service. Talk to Mike, anyone you've seen. Maybe sign up for the Christianity Explored class that begins tomorrow night so you can learn more about what it means to be saved through faith in Christ. Friend, don't, don't make the mistake Lot's sons-in-law made. Don't take the one thing that you most need to hear and consider it a joke. And that brings us to our final thing to see. We've seen Abraham intercede. We've seen Sodom burn. Let's finish by looking at the fact that Lot lingered. Lot is a very difficult figure to get a read on. He is clearly on our team. He's clearly meant to be considered one of the good guys. He is an object of God's mercy. Right, we read that in verse 16. Uh, he's spared the destruction that's befalling the city because according to verse 29, God remembered Abraham. For Abraham's sake, he spares Lot. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 to 8 tells us that Lot was a righteous man, a man who was distressed by the lawless deeds he saw around him every day in Sodom. Right, again, maybe it was Lot who was making the great outcry that came to the Lord's ears. 
we see at the beginning of chapter 19. His instincts are good. He wants to protect these visitors. He knows this is a dangerous place to be, and so he calls them in from the city square and has them stay in his house. There's a lot of good things about Lot, but there are a lot of red flags, to say the very least. We've mentioned the horrific offer of his daughters to the crowd in verse 8. We see in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 19 that Lot is told to flee to the hills, but he, he pleads to be allowed to go to the city of Zoar instead. So the angels grant his request. They're like, okay, we'll spare Zoar. You go there. But by verse 30, he's going and living in a cave because now he's terrified to live in Zoar. Then somehow, in a, a story full of violence and immorality and mass destruction, this actually has a worse ending. There in verses 31 to 38, we see Lot's daughters are living with him in a cave outside of Zoar. They're so desperate to have children, so hopeless considering the barren wasteland in which they live, that they conspire to get him so drunk that he impregnates them on consecutive nights. So how do we understand that a man like that can be righteous but also obviously given to terrible wickedness. Well, I think we're meant to see in Lot something of a warning for those of us who are followers of Christ. If you look there in verses 15 to 17, we read about the final day of Sodom. It says in verse 15, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife, and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, they said, I'm sorry, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. So here's Lot, a righteous man, the object of God's mercy, the herald who went to other people to tell them to get out of Sodom as fast as they could. Here he is, lingering, hanging out, reluctant to leave, so much so that the angel in God's mercy has to drag him out of the city. And after they've been warned not to stop, not to look back, we read in verse 26 that as they're running for their lives, Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Friends, it makes no sense. Why would Lot linger? Why would he stay in a place that he knows is under the wrath of God? Why would he hesitate to, to take himself out of a place whose wickedness distressed him so much? Brothers and sisters, couldn't we ask the same question about ourselves? If your obedience ever lingers behind your knowledge, or if your life doesn't measure up to the standard of the doctrine that you believe, or if you believe in heaven but you never really desire it, or if you believe in Jesus but don't really want to be inconvenienced in his service, if you know that your time here on earth is short, but you waste so much of what you've been given, if you know that you're living in a spiritual war, but you, you live as if you were at peace, and if any of those things are true of you, 
then you're not all that different than Lot. I'm not all that different than Lot. He knew better, but he still lingered. We often know better, but somehow this world still appeals to us. We know that God condemns sin, but still greed and drunkenness and porn and crude jokes and bitterness and envy, still they find purchase in our hearts. Instead of fighting against the sin of the world, instead of fleeing the sin of the world, we're so often content to linger. And like Lot, we find ourselves floundering spiritually, to say the least, caught up in sins we never could have imagined we'd fall into, wondering how it is that we got here. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep before us the sober reminder of Sodom, that sin is not something to be taken lightly, that the world in the end is not our friend, that holiness doesn't happen by accident, and that the judgment of God is coming against all sin and unrighteousness. Everything that tempts us to sin, everything that tempts us to linger, to waste our lives, it's all destined to be burned up in judgment. So brothers and sisters, we can't linger. We can't love the world. As we come to the Lord's table, as we contemplate the Lord Jesus' death for us, as we contemplate that great reconciliation of justice and mercy, listen to what Peter tells us about the connection between our personal holiness now and the coming judgment of God on the world. This is what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And this is a cosmic picture of what happened in Sodom. What happened in that one city on that one day serves as a sort of type, a sort of picture of what will one day happen to all things. Peter goes on, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we love you and we delight in your great wisdom. You are the judge of all the earth and you always do what is just. But in your great love, you have shown mercy to us in Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who was judged in our place. The one who was innocent but was content to be condemned as guilty on the cross. Lord Jesus, we delight in your righteousness given to us as a free gift. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would help us. We pray for any in our midst 
who have not put their trust in Christ, would you help them to flee from the wrath that is to come? Would you help them to flee to Christ? We pray that you would help us as your people not to linger in this world, not to allow our hearts and our affections to be intertwined with things that God has declared under judgment. We pray that you'd help us to wait with hope for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Help us to live, we pray, in ways that make sense of that coming hope. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.